to Thomas Tessier's World of Hurt. I'm Chris L. McKenna. Today's tale was first published in 1993 in the anthology After the Darkness, edited by Simon Wyatter. You are joining a traveler on an adventure into the Sahara Desert. It is said in the Sahara, God talks to himself. Enjoy in the desert of deserts. Drive at night, somebody told me in Lagawat, and at first I did. But that advice was only good as long as I knew where the road was. The road was quite fair over some stretches, but then it would peter out, fading into the surrounding terrain, becoming invisible until it reappeared a mile or two farther on. That was all right, too, if I didn't stray dangerously. A sensitive driver can tell where the road ought to be even when it isn't. But I found it maddeningly difficult to follow the trail at night. My vision was restricted to the range of my headlights, and I had no useful sense of the landscape. At one point on my first night out, I was driving along cautiously when the powerful beams of an oil supply truck lanced the darkness. The truck went by, nearly a mile away from me. That was where the road was, I realized unhappily. A trucker can do the desert run at night because he'd done it so many times he knew the way instinctively, but it was impossible for a first-timer to travel like that. I decided to travel the rest of the way by daylight. Besides, there was more to the challenge than just making it all the way to Niamey. I wanted to experience the Sahara at its most difficult, as well as to enjoy it at its beautiful best. It would be a shame to drive through the desert mostly at night and come away like some empty-handed thief. I spent much of the second day in Gardaya, where I topped up the water and gas tanks. I gave the Range Rover a careful examination and was satisfied. I checked the spare parts list, but I already had everything on it. I had done these same things the day before at Laguat, only a hundred miles away. But this was my last chance to correct any problems or pick up something I might need. Gardaya has supplies, equipment, skilled mechanics, and even cold soda. The oil pipeline runs nearby. It's a fairly busy town, considering the fact that it's located on the edge of the edge. I don't distrust people, but I slept with one eye on my rover and its load of supplies. I was up before dawn, feeling as eager as I was nervous, and I left Gardaya when the first infiltration of gray light began to erode the blackness. Now the crossing was truly underway. I was traveling south through the great western Erg, and my next stop was in Zala, more than 300 miles away. This would be the easy part of my journey, I reckoned. The desert was immediately fierce and formidable, but I knew there was an oasis at El Golea and some kind of military outpost at Fort Mirabel, both of which were on my route. South of Insala, the terrain would become much rougher, the climate even more hellish, and although in theory there were more villages in that part of the country, I knew they would prove to be only fly-spec settlements that offered little. I had been told that in the Sahara what you think you see on a map is usually not what you find on the ground. I had no fear of dying of thirst or starvation, nor even of heat, 
but I did worry about a mechanical breakdown that could strand me indefinitely in some heat-blasted cluster of huts on the far side of nowhere. At first, I made relatively good time, but by midday, the road deteriorated predictably, and I had to drive more slowly. After a break for lunch, I proceeded and soon got stuck. The sand in the Sahara can be deceptive and treacherous. One moment it may be as firm and hard-packed as an old gravel road, and then it'll turn into something like dry water, all but impossible to stand in or move through. My right rear tire slid into just such a hole, and it took me nearly two hours to extricate myself, with the help of aluminum tracks. Even so, I felt reasonably pleased by the time I decided to stop for the night, because I had experienced no major trouble and nothing unexpected had come up. I picked a place where the road was clearly visible, then pulled off about a quarter of a mile to set up camp. That last night of peace, I fancy I absorbed something of the remorseless clarity of the Sahara. This is a world composed of a few simple elements. Sand, air, the disappearing sky, then the blue, red, yellow, and white stars. But each one of them is huge in its singularity. They are so vivid and immediate that after a while they begin to seem unreal to the human observer, like stage props for a drama that never happens and involves no one. In the Sahara, it is said, God talks to himself. I had not come to the desert looking for any mystical fix or tourist inspiration, but I did find something like joy in the loneliness and insignificance it constantly threw in my face. I ate, cleaned up, drank a single neat scotch, and then slept well. It was chilly, but I had of course expected that and was warmly wrapped. And if there was any night wind, it didn't disturb me at all. Before dawn, as I prepared to leave, I found the footprints. I knew at once they were not mine. I almost laughed. I felt a bit like Robinson Crusoe. Shocked, amused, fascinated. After the initial wave of reaction passed, I began to feel uncomfortable. Crusoe had a pretty good idea of what he was up against but the footprints I'd discovered made no apparent sense. For one thing, they shouldn't have been there at all. They formed a counterclockwise trail, roughly in the shape of a circle, around my little camp. They looked like the tracks of a solitary adult male wearing ordinary shoes and walking at an ordinary pace. The footprints stopped twice, overlapping tightly before continuing, as if at those two points the unknown visitor had paused to stare and think for a moment. It was disturbing to know that he could only have been looking at me as I slept just a few yards away inside the circle. I calmed down after a few minutes. The headlights of an oil company truck passing by on the road must have caught part of the rover in the darkness, and the driver stopped to investigate. It was so obvious I felt silly. The fact that I could see no trail to or from the circle was strange, but a breeze could have hidden them. Or perhaps the driver had walked a particularly hard-packed stretch of ground that would show no footprints. Once I was on the road again, I thought no more about it. My progress was slow because the wind started up and the road became more difficult to follow. It was a long day, hot and demanding. But late in the afternoon, the conditions changed abruptly, as so often happens in the Sahara. The wind died away, and at the same time, I had a good section of the road. I covered more ground in the last four hours than I had in the previous eight. 
This time I camped a little farther from the road, beyond a ridge where no headlights could spot me. I didn't like the idea of anyone sneaking up on me in the middle of the night, out there in the depths of the desert. My vehicle and equipment were worth a small fortune, and the next person might not think twice about bashing my head in and hiding them. He could always return later with a partner to collect the goods. The chances of anybody else finding my remains would be virtually non-existent. I felt so secure that I was not at all prepared to come upon anything unusual the next morning. But I did. The same unmarked heels and soles. Coming from nowhere, going nowhere. But circling my ground. Stopping once or twice. I was shaken. I didn't want to be there anymore. And yet I sat down. It was as if I could not bring myself to leave. I had to reason my way out of this threatening situation. Whoever had left those tracks couldn't have followed me on foot, because I had come too many miles yesterday. He could have followed me by car or truck or even on a camel, but surely I would have seen him at some point. And if he stayed too far back, he couldn't be certain of finding the point where I left the road for the night. Besides, why would anyone bother to shadow me like this? To approach me in the darkness, but then do nothing? If he intended to attack me, he could have done so twice by now. The whole thing made no sense at all. It was precisely the fact that nothing had happened that worried me most. It seemed somehow more menacing. As if I were being monitored. Could it be a Bedouin? A nomadic Arab? Seemed unlikely. I'd been told that they travel in clans and that they seldom come through this part of North Africa. There's nothing for them here, and it isn't on any of their usual routes. Besides, I doubt that the Bedouins wear ordinary Western-style shoes. I put my hand to the ground and touched one footprint. Yes, it was real. I was not hallucinating. I traced the indentation in the sand. He had big feet. Like me. I placed my right foot next to one of the footprints. Nearly a perfect match. However... My high-top camping shoes had corrugated soles and no heels. It was theoretically possible that I had made the footprints in the middle of the night because I did have a pair of ordinary shoes packed away in the rover, but I simply couldn't believe it. I had absolutely no recollection of taking them out, putting them on, walking the circles, obscuring my tracks back to the van, and then packing the shoes away again. Not the slightest glimmer of any such a memory. If it was my doing, asleep or awake... I was well on the way to losing my mind. But isn't that what the desert is supposed to do to a person who wanders through it alone? Madness creeping in, like the sand in your socks? I told myself it wasn't possible, at least not in the first three days out of Lagawat. All that desert mythology is nothing more than a load of romantic rubbish. Nonetheless... I decided to push on all the way until I got to Insala. I stopped only to eat and drink and let the engine cool down a little. I got stuck a couple of times but never lost the road and I made pretty good time. The changes in the Sahara were largely lost on me, however. When my eyes weren't fixed on the road ahead, they were glancing up at the rearview mirror. But I never saw another vehicle or person. When I reached Insala, I was so exhausted that I slept for 11 hours. I spent another day working on the rover, stocking up on supplies, and enjoying the break in my journey. I even had a stroll around the town. What there is of it. 
and I decided to change my plans. Instead of heading south through the moderately populated mountains of the Ahagar, as I'd originally intended, I would now turn west to Zawi Ragan, and then drive south through the Tanzroof all the way to Mali, and from Burem I would follow the course of the Niger River on into Niamey. The net effect would be to shorten my journey and make it less scenic, but also perhaps more challenging. The Tan's roof is vast, empty, and closer to sea level, therefore hotter than the Ahagar. The oil trucks don't run in that part of Algeria. Some people believe that the Tan's roof is the worst part of the whole Sahara Desert. So why do it? I don't know. I must have been thinking that no one would dare follow me across the Tan's roof. Before I left in Sala, I bought a gun. An ugly Czech pistol. I don't know if I was indulging my own crazy delusions or pursuing them. These actions and decisions of mine had an irrelevance that I could not completely ignore. It was as if I sensed that I was merely distracting myself with them, and that they didn't really matter. If the man was real, he'd be there. And if he was other than real, well... He might be there anyway. One hundred miles south of Zawi Ragan, I awoke. I went out about fifty feet, looking for the footprints. Nothing. So I went a little farther, but again found nothing. No sign, no mark that didn't belong to the place. I broke into a trot, circling my campsite scouring the ground as I went. Still, nothing of an unusual nature. I ran right past it, then stopped sharply, one foot skidding out from under me as I turned back. Even then, I didn't see it. I smelled it. And as the saying goes, I thought I saw a ghost. A pencil line of blue fluttering in the air. It was smoke. In the sand were two footprints, just two, not my own. The same shoes. The heel marks were so close they almost touched each other, but the toes were apart, forming a V on the ground. It was as if the man had squatted on his haunches here, staring at me while I was sleeping. Nearby, a discarded cigarette. It was still burning, almost to the filter now, and it had an inch-long trail of ash intact. I don't smoke. I touched the smoldering tip just to convince myself it was real, and it was. I jumped up and looked around, but there was no one in sight for a half mile in any direction. I'd chosen a natural basin so there was nowhere to hide, and even if someone was lying flat and trying to insinuate himself into the sand, he'd still be easily seen. There was no one. No tracks. Just me and those two footprints and the cigarette. I picked it up and examined it carefully. Any trademark had already burned away, but there was enough left for me to see that the cigarette had been oval-shaped that is more common to the Middle East than Europe or America. But that told me nothing. <sighs> I wish it had lipstick on it. I say that, but I drove scared. And the farther I went, the more frightened I became. There was nowhere on the entire planet I could feel safe because I could drive until I passed out and I would still be in the middle of the Sahara. When I reached Beto 5, a desperate little waterhole, I sat off by myself and let the engine cool for three hours. They thought I was another of those wandering Englishmen who go to the most awful places in the world and then write articles about it for the Sunday Times. I considered driving on, but common sense finally prevailed and I stayed the night. 
I must have been even more tired than I thought, for I slept late into the morning and no one bothered to wake me. Early starts are like a matter of religion to me, but I felt so much better, refreshed, that I wasn't annoyed. Besides, I had plenty of time. The change of route gave me an extra three or four days. I was also encouraged by the fact that I was approaching the southern limits of the Sahara. Another three hundred miles and I would be rolling through the grassy plains of Mali. When I got to Burem, I might even take a side trip and visit the fabled city of Timbuktu, a center of Islamic teaching in the 15th century. I have heard that Timbuktu is just a dull and decayed backwater of a place nowadays, but I was tempted to take a look. How could I come to within a hundred miles or so of what was once regarded as the remotest spot on earth and pass it by? But I still had the last of the Sahara to deal with, and the road soon disappeared. My progress was slow. I got stuck and had to dig myself out several times, and the heat was devastating. I pushed on, regarding the desert now as nothing but an obstacle to be overcome as quickly as possible. Mileage is deceptive because the road, when you haven't strayed from it, meanders this way and that in its endless pursuit of firm ground, and a hundred miles on the map is usually a hundred and twenty-five or thirty on the clock. I think I reached the border, or even crossed it, when I had to stop for the night. Another day. A day and a half. Two at most. And I would leave the Sahara behind me. This time I parked only a few yards off the road. There was no traffic at all this far south so I had nothing to fear in that respect. And the sand was too treacherous to risk venturing into any farther than necessary. I checked the air pressure in all the tires, checked my gun, had a glass of scotch, and got into my sleeping bag. It was still quite dark when I awoke. Just like in a film, my eyes opened, but the rest of my body didn't move. I was lying on my side, and I knew immediately that I was not alone. My mind wasn't working yet, I was still in a fog, and at first I thought I saw a single red eye staring at me from some distance away. It was the glowing tip of a cigarette, I realized dimly. I couldn't make out anything of the person who held it. I was overcome by a wave of choking fear that seemed to be strangling me from within. A dozen hungry lions circling closer wouldn't have frightened me as much as that burning cigarette did. I had the gun in my hand. My elbow dug deep into the sand. I was still lying there in my sleeping bag, and I forced my drowsy eyes to focus on the tiny red speck of fire. A moment later, it traced a gentle arc, came to a stop, and then brightened sharply. As he inhaled, I squeezed the trigger. The explosion seemed distant, a curiously muffled noise that might have come from another part of the desert. I shut my eyes, having no idea what had taken place, and I fell back into sleep. The brightness woke me later. I didn't believe anything had actually happened during the night because my memory was blurred, dreamlike, unreal. The gun was where I had put it when I got into the sleeping bag last night, between carefully folded layers of a towel on the ground nearby. If I had fired it at some point in the night, surely I wouldn't have put it back so neatly. But when I sat up and looked around, I saw the body. I felt calm yet desolate. He was about twenty yards away, 
I got to my feet and walked slowly toward him. My shot had been true, like a sniper in one of the old European wars. The slug had smashed his face into a bowl of bloody mush. His hair was black and curly, his skin olive-colored. He wore a plain white short-sleeved shirt, faded khaki slacks, and a pair of ordinary shoes. A man so dressed on foot wouldn't last more than a few hours in the desert. His presence there was such a vast affront to sanity and nature that I felt a flash of anger. It gave way a moment later to cold helplessness. I found a few loose cigarettes and a box of matches in his shirt pocket, but he carried nothing else on his person. I don't smoke, but I took them. I checked inside the shirt collar, but it had no label or markings. It seemed to me that I would never know who this man was, or how he came to be in the desert with me, what he wanted, or why I had been compelled to kill him. So I got my shovel and buried him on the spot. Somewhere along the way in Mali, I gave up thinking about it. There was nothing to do. There were no answers to be discerned in the lingering confusion of fact and fear. Guilt? No. I've seen enough of the world to know how superfluous human life really is. I drove, losing myself once again to the rigors and pleasures of simple movement. Burem offered little, Timbuktu less. I looked at the dust, the mud, the crumbling and overgrown buildings that seemed to be receding into prehistory before my eyes, and I left. In Niamey, I relaxed, celebrated, and got laid. I made my way eventually down to the beaches at Accra. I ate with Swedish and German tourists who fretted about the unofficial fact that 90% of West African whores are HIV positive. That didn't bother me. I drank bottled French water with my scotch, but I also busied myself with the women. Day after day, night after night. There's not much else to do except drink and lie about. Besides, there are moments in your life when you just know you're meant to live. Why? Ulf was a well-meaning, earnest, and somewhat obsessive Swede who had developed a spurious concern for my reckless behavior. I shrugged absently at his question. He wanted an answer, but I did not care to mislead him. Regardless. Ulf had money and nothing to do, nowhere to go, like me. And so we drove to Abidjan, then Freetown, finally Banjul. I enjoyed his company, but by the time we were in the Gambia, the charm wore thin, and I was eager to be alone again. Still, I agreed that Ulf could tag along as far as Dakar. He was still with me days after that as I approached Hindu far to the north. I'm heading east, I told him. But it's just a short run to Marrakesh now. Ulf was quite disturbed. He consulted the map. There's nothing to the east, only the Sahara. No road, nothing. There's always a road. Ulf hired someone to drive him to Marrakesh. I stayed on in Tindu for a couple of days, working on the rover and restocking my supplies. I was serious about driving east. True, there was no road, but I believed I could make it anyway. I had it in mind to reach Zawiragan 400 miles away and then take the road south until I found my campsite near the border. It was the last arc in a big circle. Why indeed? At times I was crazy with disbelief. I thought I had to return to the spot and dig up the dead man, just to make sure that he was real. The missing bullet in my gun was not good enough, nor were the stale cigarettes I still carried with me. I had to see the body again. 
In some strange and unfathomable way, the rest of my life seemed to depend on it. But there were moments of clarity, too. I was caught up in a senseless odyssey. I could ramble around Africa until I died, of old age or stupidity. I argued with myself, dawdled, hung on for days in the soporific dullness of Tindouf. I dreamed of the dead man's hand reaching up out of the sand to strangle me like some corny turn in a horror movie. I dreamed that the grave was still there and I found it, but it was empty. Most of all, I imagined that I would never locate the place again. That I would just burn and blister myself to a blackish lump as I dug pointless holes in the desert. I did, after all, drive east. A few miles from the village, the ground became tricky. I pushed on, often swerving one way or another on an immediate impulse. Progress was slow. Late in the afternoon, I had a sense that I would never make it anywhere near Zawiragon. Then all four tires sank into a trough of very fine sand. <sighs> I got out. The rover was in it up to the axles, with no chance at all that I could extricate it by myself. I reckoned I was between 20 and 25 miles east of Tindouf, which was a long one-day walk. I prepared to spend the night there. I would set off early and reach the village by nightfall. I would return the day after with helpers, and we would haul my vehicle onto solid ground. They would laugh, I would pay, and later I'd drive to Marrakesh. Perhaps catch up with Ulf, and that would be the end of it. I woke up in the middle of the night, unable to get back to sleep. I pulled on my jacket and walked into the chilly darkness. I didn't go far. When the dim outline of the rover began to fade in my vision, I stopped. This is what he saw, I realized. I was still fogged with sleepiness. I sat on my haunches with my heels together and toes apart. It's often rather bright in the Sahara at night, when the stars form a brilliant skyscape but some high, thin clouds now cast everything in shades of black. The rover was an inky lump against the charcoal expanse of sand. This is what he saw. Without thinking, I took one of his crumpled cigarettes from my jacket and lit it. I didn't inhale, but puffed at it, and the glowing red tip only seemed to emphasize the surrounding blackness. I imagined a shape stirring out there, mysterious and unknowable secure in the anonymity of night. I imagined it noticing me behind my pinpoint of fire, fixing on me, as if I were the only stain on all that emptiness. And then I thought that maybe I had been wrong from the beginning. It was like looking deeply into your own eyes and finding nothing there. The End Music by Jordan Peer This has been a Watertown Arts production.